everybody and welcome to an exciting edition of words images and worlds i do always say they're exciting because i am always excited about them i'm always glad when somebody hops in the zoom room with me to record and this time it happens to be dr jared rossello did i get your name right was that good yeah you did perfect. yeah all right perfect perfect uh we've been doing a little bit of chatting and i've been enjoying the Items around the room. Um, there's a cat back there that looks kind of like Heathcliff, but that's not Heathcliff. Which cat is no, that? That's Eek the cat. Eek. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we got SpongeBob up there being very recognizable. And yeah, Patrick there. Yeah. Yeah. Patrick from SpongeBob and a lovely collection of many books. This is not going to make much sense to people listening to the audio version of this, but those of you that are enjoying the video will be like, yeah, we know what he's talking about. <laughs> so, so we've been spending a little bit of time talking about um, your work in the world of academia in, in the ivory tower and um, English and such things, but you are also a creator and a published graphic novelist and you have uh, it looks to be, I've not read it yet because it's not been published yet, but it looks to be a picture book, informational text that's that's coming soon. Is that right? Um, not informational text, picture book kind of. Yeah, I've got, I've got a couple of pending projects that are like mostly done or my part is, of them is done anyway. And so we're just sort of waiting for them to, to come out. One is an illustrated narrative art book. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, cool. Sort of hybrid uh, and that's coming out with Image Comics and Skybound. And that is a uh, Takaro, The Last Dorok. And so it's a story, it's a sort of sci-fi story. It's kind of like E.T. meets Iron Giant. Um, this last alien lands on Earth and this little boy finds him and he has to kind of like keep him alive and keep him safe. And then we nice. sort of move in time back and forth to like what happened on his home planet and how it how he ended up on earth and so by the end of the book the kind of two narratives sort of collide and so um that was a cool project that uh Takara was created by attack peter who's an artist and like a longtime friend of mine since like first grade and he um was working on this book and needed a writer to to work with and so we got together on that um so that was about the first project that i ever wrote for somebody else to to draw and to do the art for which was kind of cool um and then i have a a chapter book series called Super Magic Boy that comes That's out. That's the one. Okay. Yeah. Super Magic Boy. I, I've seen that. All right. Yeah. And that is, that is coming. Yeah, that's coming out this year in October. And so that's about a little boy named Hugo who can transform himself into anything. And uh, book one is called I Am a Dinosaur, where he transforms himself into a dinosaur so that he can go on an adventure with his best friend, who is a stuffed animal dinosaur that he calls Dino. And they go off and they have some adventures. And... Very cool. If, if the imagination could come alive. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was kind of um, inspired by this idea of when my son was really little, anytime we would watch monster movies, he would tell me, I could be that guy. I could be that guy. And what he meant was like, he could transform in our play into that guy and be that dinosaur monster, Godzilla, whatever it was. And so I love this idea of just like, trans like learning about something by transforming into it, which is a thing you see a lot of children do in their play. And so I thought, what if, 
what if you really could do that? Um, because yeah. when, when, when these, when kids transform in their play, they really go all in and it's hard sometimes to like snap them out of it. And so I thought, you know, for us, it's so easy to say they're just imagining and playing, but for them, the stakes are so high in that play that it's, you know, it's mm -hmm. real. And so that was sort of the, the seed that kind of grew that book, but it took me a couple of years to kind of figure out what it would look like and what form it would take. That's cool. That's cool. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Thanks. Looking forward to it. Um, what is it like for you to, because I, I've had a little bit of experience, but not in the way that you, you've had. I've been sort of in the ivory tower before and also done poetic things. And so I've had colleagues say to me before, like, oh, I always think about doing creative stuff, but you actually do that. What's it like to kind of spend your time doing a little bit of both, taking the researcher perspective, the the creative author perspective? Um, do those live in two separate worlds for you or do you kind of have this mingling of them? This is my gesture for mingling. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> when I... I did my my PhD in curriculum and instruction uh, at Penn State, and in in the our emphasis area is called language, culture, and society. And my advisor Kim Powell was an art ed slash literacies person, and so I think from the time I started doing my doctoral work after my MFA in creative writing, I was in a place that was amenable to like doing kind of creative hybrid work that wasn't really adhering to any one particular discipline or set of conventions or anything like that. And so, um, and I don't necessarily come from a family of PhDs or anything. I didn't really know what a PhD um, looked like or meant. And so, um, so I just kind of thought, oh, I guess this is just what I do here, you know? And so I just kind of, you know, did stuff and made comics and took a bunch of art ed courses and took, you know, performance art and children's children's art and childhood courses on childhood and ethnography and, you know, just sort of took whatever seemed interesting to me. Um, and so for me, they've never really been intention the two. And in fact, it's been really helpful for me as, a, as, an, as an artist to think through my process to think through art making, to think through the effects of art on people who engage with it. Um, I really like that stuff a lot. And I find that it's really generative for me as an artist. And I also feel like it's helped me um, gain some control over my art practice. Like I have a conceptual understanding of what I'm doing, of what's happening to me and what it means for me to make this work. And I feel like, I can make art anywhere with anything um, yeah, and, yeah. and that I'm kind of freed from this like notion of in order for me to make art, it has to be this time of day. I have to have this kind of cup of coffee. My room has to look like, you know, that, that kind of thing. I've, so, so for me, it's been really helpful. It's been really generative. And I really like to think about um, what, what are the effects of the things that I'm doing and, and for whom am I doing these things? And yeah. for me, because I'm doing children's work, I'm always thinking about kids getting this stuff. And so, um, so, so I, this is the long, long way to the answer of that. I like to go and do what might look like traditional ethnographic research in the field with kids and with teachers, just instead of writing up 
um, articles, I come back home and I make comics to that are sort of inspired by my experiences. I can't necessarily point out like this was a directly a direct sort of transcription of this experience necessarily. It's all kind of mingled together, but I know that this these sets of experiences informed this thing that I made, and so that's how I think of my practice the sort of researcher side of me and the artist side of me. And so I think that I think of all my books, even though they don't look like research in any way, but I do think of them as being um, sort of practice-based and theory informed, even if there's nothing kind of explicitly educational about them. So. I love that though. I love that because, you know, comics especially uh, kind of have this tradition of being seen as, you know, bubblegum, kind of the the things that you pull out of bubblegum or that part of the newspaper that you give to the kids or, you know, whatever it happens to be. But when you think about, you know, Red Panda and you think about like, okay, this these are characters, these are worlds inspired by um, these kind of representations of ideas and lived experiences like that's I mean that's really what a book is it, mm -hmm. it doesn't just come out of the ether it comes from the things around you that you take in so I mean that yeah. just speaks to the the complexity of comics and in, in probably the most fun way possible um, yeah so yeah and, yeah and I think you know for Red Panda and Moonbear specifically I spent um a few months teaching comics classes to uh first through third graders and kindergarten. I had a kindergarten class and then I had a first through third grader class. And so um, I've learned that I can never be a kindergarten teacher. That is just not an age group. That I could, it was pure chaos. I mean, it was hilarious, but we didn't get anything really done. But the fun part of it for me was as I'm teaching kids how to make comics and how to tell stories, I'm learning how kids understand narrative structure and how kids are thinking about the world around them and what kinds of limitations they have or don't have and what kind of affordances they give themselves as, as writers and creators. And I was really inspired by these, what I, what I came to observe as these narrative pivots, um, which were... So as adults, we tend to think that stories ought to be set up and, and, and move in a causal relationship. So uh, plot point A needs to cause plot point B, needs to cause plot point C. And one of the things I noticed from kids was that they were thinking about plot point A, um, what could interrupt and could happen that has no causal mm -hmm. link, but would be fun and hilarious or silly or just cool. Um, and I really loved that idea that they were thinking about not what should happen, but what could happen next. And as somebody who works in comics, it's an already fragmented and segmented form. The, the form itself, panel by panel, is, is always setting up the opportunity of what could happen next because the gutter or the space between panels doesn't signify any one fixed thing. It doesn't necessarily mean five seconds later. It could mean 10 years later, it could mean back in time, it could mean we move, we shift in space or time. So, so in some ways, the form of comics and this kind of storytelling that I saw kids doing really seemed to just sync up for me um, as uh, a kind of like this great like mediagenic relationship between the ways they were telling stories and this form that I wanted to tell stories in. I thought, oh, this works perfectly. Um, so that was kind of how I came up with 
the sort of absurd logic that takes place in Red Panda and Moon Bear, where the kids can kind of will any sort of narrative twist or move or pivot uh, just by thinking it or wanting it or uh, just making it happen or discovering it. So, yeah, yeah, which is kind of the it's the author mind on the page, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you living through the characters and being like, well, what if this? And I mean, I, I don't know if what if goes back in your history as a comics reader, but I love the Elseworlds tales as a kid growing up, loved the Marvel what if, like so many stories are predicated just on those two words. Of, yeah. Well, well, hey, what if? Yeah. And, and comics, I think, has another strength. It's not unique to comics, but it's certainly one of the inherent elements of it which is that it's really hard to argue with something that is rendered visual on the page in front of you and mm -hmm. so you could say like no that can't exist or that can't happen but if I draw it happening and I draw it on the page you don't really get to say no you can't do that and so in some ways the image has this kind of authority to just sort of assert another version of the world and you don't really get to say no you can't do that and so whereas i think sometimes in prose there's a little bit more you 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 can, the reader can sometimes excuse things with like oh no this is metaphor or this is a sort mm -hmm. of like dreamscape in comics the metaphor is also always actual and so i think because it's a physical object that's in the world of the story um it has this kind of power to just you can you can you can really just kind of summon something into existence and there it is and for me that was i think probably the most fun about drawing which is that i could take a sheet of paper think of a monster not even really think of a monster just start moving my hands on a paper and boom this weird creature that has never existed in the history of the world suddenly mm -hmm. now in the world so and i mean it's I, th I think we're i hope we're coming to the place where like the researched kind of approach is, is being critiqued enough you know with the works of people like nick Susanis, with the work of well kurt vonnegut's like wasn't his dissertation cat's cradle wasn't that technically his i, I, I love those sort of like yeah the fiction, the nonfiction sort of coming together in those ways. Mm -hmm. um, and then th this is the name dropping portion of the episode because we have lots of people in common. Uh, yeah. My research advisor and friend Sturge, we, we also, you, you have a connection with him and mm -hmm. he was a person who uh, was really responsible for helping me see comics as um, really a dull and I, I sort of had already seen them in a complex way, but every week I would go to his office and it was like, well, what are the new comics? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you read the Flintstones? And it's not the Flintstones. It's the Mark Russell Flintstones. Um, so he really opened my eyes with that. And then of course we have uh, Mandy Dunn in common, who mm -hmm. if you've read her dissertation, the stories she tells in dissertation format through phenomenology are just incredible. Um, so, so people are doing amazing work out there that steps across the boundaries and, and brings the arts into research, even though I think, I mean, it's all lived experience, right? Because mm -hmm. research as a representation of reality is the world around us. That's also what art happens to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. And I think there's, there's, you know, anxiety over sort of the arts 
in research, I, I guess I should say I understand the concerns that some folks have about art as research. And I, I'll never forget, um, as I was ra- as in my final year of my PhD, I, I, I was at, I think it was at AERA in Philly. Um, and I was presenting on an arts-based research panel with Nick Susanis, we just mentioned earlier. Yeah, and yeah. at the end of my presentation during the Q&A, um, someone stood up from the crowd and was like, it's cool what you're doing, but I just don't think it's research. And I don't think it's ethical for you to publish this as research in research journals, basically. And the room was full of, you know, performance artists and other arts-based researchers. So the audience was having this like great discussion on what's research and what's not research. And I think one of the big one of the difficulties is that when you make art, you're not necessarily answering something. You're oftentimes asking questions. You're sort of opening spaces for new questions. But I think the, the what, what art really does is that it generates the production of more art. And so when you engage with a work of art and you're a maker, usually you put that down and you don't say like, oh, okay, now I've solved that great problem. You say, wow, I'm inspired to make something. And I think that process of art generating the production of more art creating more, and all of these different art projects, just asking questions and opening spaces for more questions to ask, it's really cool, but it's also hard to quantify or hard to say definitively what's happening here. Oh, so it's difficult to, uh, to assess as well. And schools, as we know, like to be able to assess at some level yeah. of what's, what's been learned here, right? Or what's been done here. And so, um, so I understand the concern. I don't agree with them, but I do understand where, where folks who are concerned about this stuff um, are drawing from. And I understand the source of their anxiety. It's just not a concern or an anxiety that I share. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, but I think understanding it is part of, how you need to articulate in that conversation too, and how you need to come to that conversation of what you need to sort of say, and you may need to defend the kinds of work that you're doing. Um, But I know that when I'm sort of applying for grants or trying to get particular fellowships, I have to use different kinds of language to describe what I'm doing because I know that I know who's reading this, right? And I know that it's not an artist. I know that it's like a researcher and it's probably someone from like the chemistry department or something. And so I need to like use that language in order to talk about the work that I'm doing. Um, So I have to learn their language and my language and kind of put those things together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think what you said there too. There, there are so many things you said that just kind of resonate with me, and I, I don't think we've really stuck to the questions at all. But I think that's also no. okay. Um, you know, as an educator, I appreciate that fine point. I appreciate when the correct answer is supposed to be B, and this percentage of the students chose A. You know, those are moments where we can learn. But I also, in in my brain, if there's a fine point in education, because it's also complex, human behavior is complex, human experience is complex. I almost picture like a halo around that fine point of like, yes, that is the answer. But what about all of these other things? Mm-hmm. So I, I love to think about it that way, too, which I think is something that's that's really made possible by looking at research. And I, I also think that like there's this thing of recognizing your people. Uh, One of the first articles that I tried to get published from my dissertation, which was not, I I don't think I broke any barriers. I didn't do Nick Cezanne's style things or anything like that, but I did, I did a qualitative study. And so I remember writing the article from the dissertation, sending it in. 
And I had this whole section of like, this is what I did to be trustworthy. Uh, you know, I, I did this, I double checked this. I, I mean, I named like three or four things that were all part. And then I got a rejection from the journal and one of the reviewers said, yeah, I still don't trust it. Mm. And it's like, okay, that's, you know, it, it may be you were looking for the quantitative side and I didn't mm. give that to you through my dissertation about film and that's okay. That's not the space for that. And I think that's good for folks to know out there that are engaged in scholarship because the, the huge imposter syndrome that comes along with it. Um, if you're sharing things, if you're sharing ideas, especially if they're going to be something that breaks paradigm or that even just kind of pushes on the, the barrier of the paradigm a little bit, you know, there are going to be people that embrace it. There are going to be people that question it. And then there are going to be, be people that are just like, nah. And, you know, all of that's okay. It's okay. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And I, and I, you know, in some ways it's, we, we need to have people doing all the kinds of work that's out there. Right. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I think, you know, the structure, the fact that the structure exists is what makes this kind of work subversive in the first place. Right. Because if that structure didn't exist, we wouldn't be subverting anything really. And so, um, so I think we're, I think we're always looking at what is dominant. How can we, sort of open that space up a little bit more to include more people. How can we, we should always, I think, be kind of asking ourselves, why are we doing what we're doing? And should we be doing what we're doing? Because it's easy to kind of just get into a rut of this is what we do and this is how we do it. But, you know, every now and then taking the time to stop and say, should we still be doing this? And should we still be doing it this way? I think is important. Um, but, um, but yeah, doing that kind of work, I think, and like you said, finding your people is really important. Um, one of the benefits I have because I'm not, because I'm in an English department and I teach creative writing and my job is linked to my creative work. It also means that I don't have to make any research that I don't want to do. And I don't have to yeah. publish it unless it looks exactly the way I want it to look. Right. Cause otherwise I'll just say no and I'll go do something else. And so that gives me some freedom to say, you know, um, I published one piece where uh, my first reviewer was like, uh, this is great. And then the second reviewer was like, this cannot be published as is unless these specific th changes are made to it because of right. serious issues of like validity and other things. And I, again, you know, I understood those concerns, but I wrote back to the editors and I was like, hey, look, here's the feedback I got. I can't make these changes without jeopardizing the integrity of the piece that I've written. So Absolutely. I understand the concerns, but I can't do them. And I'm sorry. And so, uh, and they were like, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not under any sort of pressure to like, get certain things published for tenure or for promotion or anything like that. So I feel like I can just make the things exactly as I think they should be made and, you know, listen to the sort of feedback that comes in from people who are understand what I'm doing and are giving me the kinds of feedback that's helping me, but I can't just shift paradigms and do something that's, that's not, that's not in the spirit of the thing that I'm making. And so, um, so holding your ground, I think, where it, where it matters to you and then listening to the feedback that you're getting from people who want to help your thing that you're making be better is, is helpful, too. And that's something that I have to do with creative work with editors anyway. Right. So, you, I mean, if you don't do it one place, I'm doing it somewhere else. So it's happening, still happening. But yeah. I remember some of the very first rejection uh, notices that I got from academic publishers 
uh, experiencing kind of the variants of, oh, I love it. I want to publish it. Oh, well, I've had a bad day. So, oh, well, I have concerns about this. And I, yeah. I can't remember where I got it. If I found it online on like a meme or if somebody really smart said it to me. But I always try to think about it as like constructive criticism being that word construct. Like, okay, you've criticized my work. I'm not perfect. I acknowledge that. Um, what can I build out of this? And is what I'm building out of this in line with my vision and my way that I want to share in the world around me? And if it is, great. If it's not, probably send it somewhere else and, right. and it's fine. And yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, you will get those people who get what you're doing, but also have found some serious issues that you do need to address yes. in your Absolutely. own work. And those are the important, uh, that's the important feedback, I think, to really take, you know, take seriously and to think about when you're doing. And so um, I've definitely found myself in a number of situations where it's hard. You know, you're in the middle of a long-term project. You can't see it clearly. And so hmm. somebody else takes two seconds to look at it. And they're like, did you notice this giant glaring error that you right. <laughs> like, oh, right. That thing. Yes. Right. Thank you for noticing that. I don't know what was happening, but yeah. So, so author, creative writer related question is, do you share your work with your students, either published or in progress? Do they get to well, see some of the like process? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I feel I love teaching and I love being with my students. I really feel like it's not about me when I'm in the classroom. And so mm -hmm. my students are always like, why didn't you tell us you had a book come out? And I'm like, because I'm celebrating the work that you're making. So I am a little like shy about bringing my own work into the classroom. I try to be mindful of like weird power things, but there are times right. where it's really helpful and to show them like, hey, here's what my script looks like. And here's what the thumbnails look like from the script. Here's what the pencils look like from it. So I, I like to show them work in progress not just kind of like look at my amazing book sort of thing but you know so i like to bring work that's in progress um i i, I write a lot kind of on the spot with my students and i'm always sharing my own work like alongside them so i think you know i'm participating in our class so they're definitely seeing all of my stuff and then i'll bring my stuff when i think it's kind of helpful in either an instructional or pedagogical way to kind of show them like here's the stages of production for this and when i visit schools i tend to bring like my original art and my my scripts and everything to show the kids the process of how it gets made and all of that so yeah i do like to do that and i have access to that so it's, it's helpful to kind of bring that in but cool. you know. Well, as we get down to the last couple of minutes uh, of our time together and of the episode, you know, we, we sort of, as I said, I haven't even looked at the questions. We just sort of had a nice talk together. This is what happens when you have two guys with PhDs, I guess, right. you know, yeah. it's like that, that happens. And we're both, it sounds like first generation. So that's a whole other conversation. Right. Uh, yeah. That, that we can podcast or just talk about sometime. But mm -hmm. uh, my intention is also that folks out there listening if they've not checked out your work they will do that so i do want to give one more shout out to red panda and moon bear as well as your upcoming work super magic boy um and please remind me of the other title that you mentioned yeah it's called takaro the last dorak i don't think it'll be out till 2024 though so but this october super magic boy i am a dinosaur is out so, so 
upcoming author related events, I'll absolutely put your website as a link. I always try to do that, but uh, any, anything for the reader side out there of folks that are like, I want to see this. I want to see this person uh, in action, making comics that are representations of experiences in classrooms and, and drawing all this together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as far as like other resources, resources events or anything like that that you'd like to to share about um, oh from of me for mm -hmm. me yeah i don't being the guy who doesn't like to share his work in class i'm giving <laughs> yeah, you the chance <laughs> i don't have anything coming up right now i'm actually taking the summer to finish a book um and <laughs> to, to, to lay low for a little bit um but i am online and and at jared rosello on all my social media and i'm always uh i love to hear from people so if people are like working on stuff and you like need somebody to talk to or have some questions i'm always my inbox is always open too and so i'm always fielding questions and talking to folks and um and around and so yeah and and on my website too for teachers i have a bunch of uh downloadable comics and PDFs that you can share, kid-friendly comics to kind of share with students uh, and excerpts from my books and ways to get in touch with me through there, so. It's wonderful. And I, I don't blame you for a, a well-deserved time of rest and laying low. That's the sort of the June and July mantra of folks in academia and educators everywhere. So yeah, uh, I know I always have these, taking time. <laughs> I just, I always have these big plans for summer, but then I'm usually just like, Oh no, I just need to yeah. catch up on my own writing and books. And uh, so I don't know, hang out with my kids and just, you know, go to the pool. I'm in Florida. Priorities. So get outside and we just do stuff. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, a pleasure to finally share some Zoom space after uh, a few years of connecting in different ways. And um, I, I'll gladly share the video for folks that want to see our faces and see Eek the Cat and also share the audio. There's Great. It. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank All you. Right. Yeah.